You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, at the beginning of Luke chapter 11, Jesus taught his disciples about a life of prayer, just a beautiful section of scripture. But moving on in the chapter, when you get to verse 14, there's a wonderful thing that Jesus does that really casts the setting for the rest of this particular section, I believe, all the way through verse 36, which we will study today. And the thing that he does is written for us there in verse 14. Let's read it together. It says, Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. And so what you have here is Jesus casting out a demon from a man, which we, of course, have already discovered in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus did from time to time. It was a very common miracle that Jesus would perform. But the thing that caused the people to marvel here was not just that the demon had been cast out, but that this was a mute demon. Now, what this more than likely means is that the demon had simply kept the man from speaking. There were those in the life and times of Jesus who thought and taught that in order to cast out a demon, you had to first acquire the name of the demon, and then it could be cast out. Jesus responds to no such rules, and he drives the demon out of this man without even hearing the name of the demon. And the people, of course, marvel. And this will cause or be really the backdrop of the verses that follow. But before we move into those verses, I think a great thing to ask would be simply the question, why is it that in the life of Jesus we see such strong demonic activity? Perhaps you've looked around at your own life and you've thought to yourself, well, you know, I wonder. I wonder how often is there this demonic activity all around me? Perhaps there have been people in your life that you've wondered, are they demon-possessed? And when you go backwards in God's revelation, not just in your own experience currently, but you go back to the Old Testament, there is, of course, demonic activity that you read about from time to time in the Old Testament, but it's nothing like it was during the gospel era of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So why would there be such strong demonic presence during the ministry of Christ, but not in the Old Testament era or perhaps by our perception, at least, in our own current era. And I think probably one way to answer that question is to understand and to remember that Satan is limited in his resources. There's a finite number of demons that exist. And so when Jesus, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, you would imagine that like moths to the porch light, the demonic realm would come crushing upon the Galilee, come crushing upon Israel during that time. Satan was not ignorant to the birth of Jesus, and so you would expect a rise in demonic activity during the earthly life of Jesus Christ on earth there in Israel. Some have postulated, and it's interesting to think about, that the devil observed the hypostatic union. He observed God becoming flesh and decided to attempt his own perverted hypostatic union by attempting to inhabit people who would open themselves up to demonic 
possession. I don't know if that's the case or not, but some have conjectured in that kind of way. But nonetheless, you would expect a heightened demonic activity in whatever place Jesus was at in his earthly ministry. Now, in response to this man being delivered from his demonic possession, there were two critical groups. Most people marveled. We read that in verse 14. But there were two groups who criticized Jesus. Let's read of them in verse 15 and 16. It says, But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, and this is the second group, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. So group number one, basically, they used this title, which had become basically over time a title that would be used for Satan. And they said he's casting out demons by the power of Satan himself, the prince of demons. And then secondly, there was another group who said, we want him to give us a real legitimate sign from heaven. And Jesus is going to address both of those lines of criticism in the verses and movements that follow in our text. Now, we might be tempted, I think, in our modern era to say, well, these aren't arguments that are common to us. We don't make comments like this. We don't think this way about the Lord. But the reality is, is that I think we probably think this way more often than we think that we do. I mean, for one, looking at the power of Jesus and perhaps from time to time wondering, you know, this thing that's happened in my life, is this really the work of God in my life? Or am I just different because I plopped myself into a church full of people who have good values and, you know, love righteousness and want to live a certain kind of life? And and so am I just different because of that? Am I a product of my environment? Or is this really the power of God working in my life. And then I think another thing that we might say, these people said, the, the critics said, we want a sign from him, a sign from heaven. And, and I think oftentimes we might say to the Lord, Lord, I love you. Lord, I, I care for you. I'm devoted to you. But if you really loved me, then you would show me with this particular sign in my life. You would solve this relationship. You would give this promotion. You would bless me in this kind of way. I think we're probably more guilty of saying things like this than we might readily think. Now, Jesus in verse 17, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. So Jesus really goes after the first line of attack, the people that said that he was casting out demons by the power of the devil. And he says, listen, that's illogical. Number one, think about it. Kingdoms that are divided are destroyed. They no longer exist. Households that are divided are destroyed. They fall. They no longer exist. So if Satan is divided against himself, how would his kingdom stand? Look around. You know that his kingdom exists. I, in fact, look at this man. He had just been demon-possessed. The kingdom of Satan is alive and well. So because it's going on, you know that it's not a divided kingdom. It, it exists because of the unity towards evil that they possess. 
And so, you know, Satan would be shooting himself in the foot to be casting out demons. That's not the way that it works. Then in verse 19, he said, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Secondly, Jesus looks at this line of attack and he says, Well, you should get your sons to weigh in on this logic. Now, it's clear that there was some activity regarding exorcism in Israel around that time. Exorcism was an accepted Jewish practice. In Acts 19, we see that they were active in the casting out of demons. But you also remember that at this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus had sent out the 12 and then he had sent out the 72 We learn in chapter 9, verse 50, John mentioned that he had found one who was casting out demons in Jesus' name, who was not part of Jesus' apostolic group. So, perhaps Jesus is just looking at these accusers and saying, hey, look around. Look at the 12. Look at the 72. Look at others. They are casting out demons in my name, and it is working. It is effective. I'll just let them tell you and and testify as to whether they did this by the power of the devil or not. But then Jesus says in verse 20, he says, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, this is a beautiful moment in Luke's gospel. Jesus refers to his power as the power of of the finger of God. If it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now, back in the Old Testament, during the period of the Exodus, when Moses brought the plagues upon the Egyptians, and really it was God doing the work, but with the staff and the rod and Aaron, as the plagues came down upon Egypt, when they turned the water into blood, the Egyptian magicians were able to mimic that particular miracle. They couldn't turn the blood back into water, but they could turn more water into blood. When the frogs came, the second plague, they were also able to emulate that particular plague. I believe some people think that that was done through trickery. I Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if it was demonic power that these sorcerers and magicians possessed. But the third plague, the plague of gnats, when it was brought upon the land of Egypt, it says in Exodus 8 verse 19 that the magicians said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Then later in Exodus chapter 31 The finger of God reappears when God writes upon the two tablets of stone the Ten Commandments. He writes them with his finger, the finger of God. And so for Jesus to say here that if it's by the finger of God that I cast out demons, it's actually a beautiful thing that he says because we're going to see, number one, that the finger of God is the power of God to deliver But secondly, that the finger of God also communicates. And and this is the answer to both of these lines of criticism. The first line, you're doing this by the power of the devil. And he says, no, I'm doing it by the finger of God. I'm doing it by the power of God. The second line, we want a sign. Jesus would say, I am the sign. You just look to me. The finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments. 
I'm here with the finger of God. You just need to look at me. I am communicating the truth. Just as God communicated with his finger, so I am communicating the truth. And so Jesus says, if it's by the finger of God that I've done these things, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Already here within people's hearts, of course, the kingdom is not yet fully realized. We look forward to Jesus fulfilling the promises of the Bible and bringing about his everlasting rule and reign. We are looking forward to that day. But could we not also say that the kingdom of God has come upon us? Then he goes on and he says in verse 21, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus here points out to them a story and tells them of this, you know, kind of the concept of a strong man guarding his palace. That, of course, is the devil. Jesus then says there's one stronger than he who attacks him and overcomes him. That's Jesus overcoming the devil in his first coming. But we would especially highlight the cross of Christ is where Jesus overcame the power of the devil. And then the stronger man, notice in Jesus's analogy, he takes away the armor in which the first man trusted and he divides his spoil. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm here. I'm going to rule and reign victorious. I'm powerful over Satan. I've attacked him. I will overcome him. And I will divide his spoil. Now, what is the spoil of the devil? I think we would have to confess that the spoil is humans. Human beings who have been locked up in his lies and rebellion and temptation. Jesus says, I'm coming after his spoil. I am taking people unto myself. Now, if that's what Jesus is saying, then verse 23 is monumental, I think, for the Christian life. Because he says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What he must be saying there then in that context is, listen, I'm going out and I'm taking Satan's spoil. I'm dividing his spoil. I've conquered him and now his spoil is mine. Who is going to be with me? Who is going to gather with me? If you don't gather with me, then it is tantamount to scattering. And I, I think that in one sense, this is just simply a beautiful invitation from Jesus, inviting us into the era of collecting the spoils. You know, you and I, whenever we lead someone to Christ, we share our faith, their hearts are warmed, they want to know the Lord, they eventually receive him, give their lives to him, they repent of their sin and believe in the gospel. When that occurs, we are simply taking the spoil that belonged to the devil and we're collecting it for Jesus. And this is the era of collecting the spoils. And so what a beautiful thing. And I think it would speak to us to say yes to the invitation of Jesus. Now, when the unclean spirit, Jesus said in verse 24, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. 
and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, this is a very mysterious statement from Jesus. Three verses where he talks about the demonic realm. He talks about an unclean spirit leaving a person, you know, going out and passing through the waterless places. We would ask the question, do demons need water? No, but humans need water. So if they go to the waterless places, that means they're going to places where there are no humans. After being there for a while, the demon says, I'll return to my house from which I came. What's his house? Well, the original person. So when it comes, Jesus says, if he finds the house swept and put in order, then he'll go and bring seven other spirits more evil than itself. That is a scary concept. And then they will enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person will be worse than the first. What is Jesus communicating through this mysterious statement about the demonic realm? Well, you know, on one hand, you think about the situation that Israel was in at that moment. There is this heightened demonic activity. Jesus goes in, he's casting out demons, he's speaking the truth to them. The light is shining. Jesus would go at the Feast of Lights and he would announce, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. You need to look to me. You need to, to see me. I'm the light of the world. He, he was illuminating and driving out the darkness. But at the end of all of that, if in general, by the nation, there was a rejection of that light, then the final state would be worse for that nation than the first. So perhaps Jesus is in one sense speaking nationally to the people of Israel at this time. You know, just basically a statement of, you know, I'm here. You should receive me. You should decide to embrace what I'm teaching. But I think it also gives us, in one sense, just a, I don't know, a word of warning or practical insight into what happens or, or the, the danger, really, of trying to clean up your life through religious activity or even church-based activity without receiving Christ into your life. In other words, you can't just reorder, you must receive and you must replace that which had been there with the Lord. And I've seen this so often, people attempting to clean up their lives through church attendance or, you know, the simple severing of relationships or trying to have new habits. And so often, the last state of that person is worse than the first. What you really need is for Christ to come into your life, to inhabit you, and to be the Lord of your life. Now, as he said these things, verse 27, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. All right, so there he is teaching. And this woman, I, I feel like she says this so impulsively, so spontaneously, and I, and I cannot begrudge her for this. I think that she was overwhelmed by Jesus. And, you know, women in that age had hoped to give birth to the Messiah. 
I think that this woman looked upon Jesus and she's just overwhelmed with adoration for him. She's listening to his teaching. She's watching his work. Perhaps she knew the demon-possessed man. And she just blurts out, not just a praise towards him, but a very creative praise by saying, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nurse. You know, in other words, your mother is incredibly blessed to be your mother. It wasn't even so much a compliment of Mary as it was a compliment of Jesus. But he said in response, and I just love Jesus's ability to just answer the most random statement that might come across his path. He said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, Jesus says, look, I know that it's true that my mother occupies a special place of blessing, but there is a greater position of blessing, and that position is reserved for those who hear the word. They hear about me. They hear the truth about me. They then believe it and ultimately keep it. And that says a lot to us about our beautiful position in Jesus, to know that when you believe in the Lord and you follow him, that is a stronger and higher position than even Mary herself received. I mean, that sounds odd to even say it that way, but these are the words of Christ. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now, when the crowds, verse 29, were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, it is always interesting that these people, or at least some of them, were looking for a sign. Jesus, of course, had performed many miracles. Apparently, those miracles weren't enough for them. Most people think that it's because they weren't of the right variety. You know, helping people who were sick or helping demon-possessed people or feeding the poor. These weren't the kind of things that many people wanted. And it probably said a lot about their own hearts, that they really weren't concerned for those who were hurting, really weren't concerned for those who were demon-possessed or in sickness. Uh, most people think that what they were looking for was something with a little more pizzazz. There are accounts of those who claim to be the Messiah who would try to do things like part the Jordan River. And that seems to be the kind of sign that people wanted. Fire falling out of the sky and, and destroying the Romans. And so they're continually looking for that kind of sign, at least a group of people, from the Lord. But Jesus here says, the only sign that you're going to get from me is the sign of Jonah. Now, when Matthew records this, he goes on to say that as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here, he doesn't record that, but it helps us understand that the sign would be Jesus' resurrection. That's the one sign. And of course, we know that the church was basically birthed as a result of the resurrection. They saw Jesus risen from the grave and they believed. And the Spirit filled them and they went out testifying of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus also said here, though, in verse 30, 
that as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. So here he's not even really highlighting the fact that Jonah, his three days and three nights in the fish, was an emblem of the resurrection, but that Jonah himself became a sign to the people of Nineveh. And then he says in verse 31, the queen of the south, and this is the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, he says, she will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And it is true, the queen of Sheba in 1 Kings chapter 10, she came from a far place to hear from Solomon, and he answered all of her questions. There was nothing that he could not answer. She exclaimed that it's true what I heard of you. But it actually says that when she saw and when she heard all of these things about Solomon, it says that there was no more breath in her. 1 Kings 10 verse 5. She became a believer. She listened to what Solomon had to say. Then in verse 32, Jesus said, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So the queen of Sheba heard Solomon's wisdom and responded. Something greater than Solomon's here. The people of Nineveh heard the preaching of Jonah and responded. And something greater than Jonah is here. What is Jesus saying? He's saying to these people who want a sign, he's saying, you want a sign? You want a sign. And, and specifically, what did they said? We want a sign from heaven. Jesus just looks at them and says, something greater than Solomon and something greater than Jonah is here. You want a sign from heaven. Where do you think I've come from? Look at me. I am your sign. I am enough for you. I am the sign. And I think that's so helpful to us when we feel like these people felt and say, Lord, if you really love me, give me a sign. Well, look to the cross. Look to the sign that he's already given to you. That's the greatest sign that you could ever receive. So the wisdom of the Lord and the preaching of the Lord, that's enough. Just look to Jesus. Now, in verse 33, it says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now, Jesus used this analogy quite often throughout his teaching ministry, but the application was quite often different. Like in some places, he would say to his disciples, You know, you don't cover a lamp, but you let it shine. So let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So let your light shine. Here, though, he says this little parable and says, you know, no one lighting a lamp puts it on a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. And then he applies it. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. So the eye of a person, Jesus said, it's the lamp of your body. So your eye is not the light. Jesus is the light. But your eye, 
the way you see him. It illuminates everything about you. So Jesus said, in other words, if your eye is healthy, in other words, if you see me correctly, you believe in me, you're receiving the truth about me, then you know what's going to happen? Light is going to enter into you. And that light can become wholly bright. It will dominate everything about you. So invite me in more Thank and more and more. Let my light for shine with resources and teachings. But if you see me incorrectly, us, please visit there us is no chance that there will be light within it. Your whole body will be full of darkness. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So the warning here or the exhortation here is receive the truth about Jesus. See him correctly. Let his light in and let his light continue to illuminate you. Once again, Jesus here is answering these lines of criticism and saying, the power that I operate with is the power of God, the finger of God. And you're looking for a sign? The sign is me. The sign is my word. See me correctly. Receive me, for that is enough. God bless you, and amen.